0: Section two of Roman History the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Augustus, B.C. thirty one to A.D. fourteen. Part one. The victory of Actium had made Octavianus the undisputed master of the Roman world. One by one, rivals and obstacles had been swept away, and the patient schemer had now mounted to the topmost rung of the ladder of ambition. During the troublous years of the long struggle for power, his public life had been one course of selfish aims, unscrupulous acts, and makeshift policy. He had yet to prove that there was anything of real and abiding greatness in his schemes to raise him from the ranks of mere political adventurers but from this time we may trace a seeming change of character which is the more remarkable because it is so hard to parallel it was no change of measures only such as often comes with new conditions such as that which made the founder of the dynasty reverse much of the policy of the earlier years for spendthrift and prodigal as julius had been before he used his power to curtail extravagance sent police agents to the markets and even to the houses of the wealthy to put down luxury by force the leader of the popular party forbade the growth of guilds and social clubs like those which had often carried the elections in his favour the favourite of the populace was anxious to check the spread of pauperism by sterner measures the revolutionary general whose tent had been the refuge of the men of tarnished name and ruined fortunes baffled all their hopes of plunder by passing stringent measures to restore credit and to curb official greed octavianus also in like case resorted to like policy one of his first cares was to repeal the unconstitutional acts of his earlier life and so to close the period of revolution he took steps without delay to restore order and to strengthen the moral safeguards which years of anarchy and civil war had almost ruined to this end he passed laws like those of julius and unlike his kinsman was enabled by his long tenure of power to carry out a conservative reform in morals and religion which left some enduring traces but the change in character lay deeper far than this he had shown while the struggle lasted a cruelty without excuse though possibly reluctant at the first to engage in proscriptions He is said to have acted in them more relentlessly than either of his colleagues he had his prisoners of war butchered in cold blood mocked at their prayers for decent burial and calmly watched their dying agonies that he was hard and pitiless beyond the spirit of his times is implied in many stories of the day and among others we read that when the captives of philippi passed in bonds before their conquerors They saluted Antonius with marked respect, but vented their deepest curses on Octavianus to his face. But after Actium, he showed what was for that age an unusual clemency. He spared his open enemies, he hunted out no victims, and professed even to burn the secret papers of his rival, which might have compromised his partisans at Rome. The same gentler spirit breathes through the whole of his long period of rule his jealous intolerance had led him once to drive a consul-elect to suicide for a bitter word and to fine or banish citizens of nursia for honouring with a monument their dead who had fallen as they wrote in defence of freedom on the field of mutina but he was ready now to show respect to the memory of pompeius to let historians write the praises of the great republicans of rome to congratulate the men of mediolanum Milan, for prizing the busts of brutus to listen calmly to the gibes vented on himself in popular satires or in dead men's wills to let even lampoons be scattered in the senate-house and make no effort to hunt down the authors his suspicious fears had made him once give orders for the instant execution of a curious bystander who had pressed in too eagerly to hear him speak in public and put even to the torture a praetor who came to greet him and whose hidden notebook was mistaken for a dagger but in later life he walked without an escort through the streets went to and fro to join the social gatherings of his friends and showed no fear of an assassin's knife the cheerful cordiality and homely courtesies of his maturer age were a marked contrast to the cold ungenial reserve of earlier days and those who find his real character hard to read may see perhaps a fitting symbol for it in the figure of the sphinx which he wore upon his signet ring but this change of manner could not be an easy thing and was probably not soon effected There are signs which seem to show that constant watchfulness and self-restraint was needed to curb his natural temper, and that personal influences were at work to help him. Though he was patient and merciful, in most cases that were brought before him when on the seat of judgment, it is said that Mycenas, who was standing by, marked on one occasion the old bloodthirsty instinct reappear, and flung to him a hasty note with the words Rise, hangman, written on it. Another time, when stung by what was uttered in the Senate, he hurried out abruptly and excused himself afterwards for want of courtesy, by saying that he feared his anger would slip from his control. We are told that with others commonly, and even with Livia his wife, he would not always trust himself to speak on subjects of grave moment without writing down the notes of what he had to say. In the gloom that settled on him in old age, when family losses and dishonour coupled with national disasters weighed upon his mind the hard and unlovely features of his character long hidden out of sight seemed to come to light once more as the force of self-control was weakened by the laws of natural decay yet even with such reserves his history presents a spectacle almost unexampled of the force of will in molding and tempering an ungenial nature, and of the chastening influence of sovereign rule. The signal victory just won, the honors voted by the servile Senate, the acclamations of the people, the license of unbounded power, might well have turned his head, as they proved fatal to the temper of many a later emperor but the dagger of brutus haunted his memory and warned him to beware of outraging roman feeling but far beyond its effect upon his personal bearing we may trace the influence of these warning memories on the work which lay before him of giving shape and system to the future government of rome power and repute had passed away from the old forms of the republic the whole world lay at the feet of the master of many legions it remained only to define the constitutional forms in which the new forces were to work. But to do this was no easy task. The perplexities of his position, the fears and hopes that crossed his mind, are thrown into dramatic form by the historian Dion Cassius, who brings a scene before our fancy, in which Octavianus listens to the conflicting counsels of his two great advisers, Agrippa and Maecenas. The former is supposed to paint in sombre colors the difficulties of a monarch's lot to remind him of the warnings of the past and the dangers of the future and strongly to urge him to copy the example set by sulla and after passing needful laws and strengthening the safeguards against anarchy and license to resign the outward show of power and come down from the dizzy pinnacle of greatness Mycenas, on the other hand, counsels absolute rule, though masked by constitutional disguises, and describes at great length a system of centralized government in sketching which the historian drew mainly from the experience of his own later times, and with slight regard for strict historic truth, attributed to the inventive genius of Mycenas a full-grown system of political machinery, which it took some centuries of imperialism to develop but though we must regard the narrative in question more as the writer's own political theorising than as a sketch of matter of fact yet there is little doubt that schemes of resignation were at some time discussed by the emperor and by his circle of advisers it is even possible as the same writer tells us that he laid before the senators at this time some proposal to leave the helm of state and to let them guide it as of old we are told that they were thrown into confusion by his words and that mistrusting his sincerity or fearing the return of anarchy and the scramble for power that would soon ensue they all implored him to withdraw his words and take back the power which he had resigned the scene if ever really acted was but an idle comedy and the offer could scarcely have been seriously meant Though there may have been some passing thought of it even at this time, and still more at a later period when he had long been sated with power and burdened with the cares of office. It is more probable that he was content with some faint show of resistance when the Senate heaped their honours on his head, as afterwards when more than once, after a ten years' interval, they solemnly renewed the tenure of his power. But we cannot doubt his sincerity in one respect, in his wish to avoid the kingly title and all the odious associations of the name. It had been from early times offensive to Roman ears, it had grown far more so as they heard more of the wanton lust and cruelty and haughtiness of Eastern monarchs, and they scorned to be degraded themselves to the level of their cringing subjects. The charge of aspiring to be king had often been an ominous cry in party struggles, and had proved fatal to more than one great leader. It had been truly said, perhaps, of Caesar, and had largely helped to ruin him, and his successor was too wary to be dazzled by the bauble of a name. He shrank also from another title, truly Roman in its character, but odious since the days of Sulla, and though the populace of Rome, when panic-struck by pestilence and famine, clamoured to have him made dictator and threatened to burn the senate as it sat in council if their will was not obeyed yet nothing would induce him to bear the hateful name but the name of caesar he had taken long ago after his illustrious uncle's death and this became the title first of the dynasty and then of the imperial office besides this he allowed himself to be styled augustus a name which roused no jealousy and outraged no roman sentiment yet vaguely implied some dignity and reverence from its long association with the objects of religion as such he preferred it to the suggested name of romulus and allowed one of the months to be so called after him as the preceding one of julius had been named after his kinsman with this exception he assumed no new symbol of monarchic power but was satisfied with the old official titles which, though charged with memories of the republic, yet singly corresponded to some side or fragment of absolute authority. The first of these was Imperator, which served to connect him with the army. The imperium, which the name expressed, had stood in earlier days for the higher functions, more especially for the power of the sword, which belonged to civil as well as military authority but gradually curtailed in other cases by the jealousy of the republic it had kept its full meaning only in the camp the imperator was the general in command or in a still more special case he was the victorious leader whose soldiers had saluted him upon the field of battle julius whose veterans had often greeted him with this title in many a hard-fought campaign chose it seemingly as a fitting symbol of the new regime as a frank avowal of its military basis and in this sense it was found convenient by his successors. It implied absolute authority, such as the general has over his soldiers, and the concentration in a single chief of the widespread powers entrusted to subordinate commanders. It suggested little of the old forms of constitutional election, but appealed rather to the memory of the army's loyal acclamations and gave a seeming claim to their entire obedience the title of the tribunician power connected the monarch with the interests of the lower orders. In the early days of privilege, when Rome was parted into rival classes, the tribunes had been the champions of the commons. Sacrosanct or inviolate themselves, and armed with power to shield the weak from the license of the magistrate or noble, they gradually assumed the right to put a veto, or check, on all public business in Rome in the party struggles of the last century of the republic they had abused their constitutional powers to destroy the influence of the senate and organize the popular movement against the narrow oligarchy of the ruling classes such authority was too important to be overlooked or entrusted in its fulness into other hands the emperor did not indeed assume the tribunate but was vested with the tribunician power which overshadowed the annual holders of the office it made his person sacred not in the city only or in discharge of official acts as in their case but in all times and through the whole breadth of the empire it gave him the formal right to call the meetings of the senate and to lay before them such business as he pleased and thus secured the initiative in all concerns of state out of the old privilege of appeal to the protection of a tribune came the right of acquittal in judicial functions which made the emperor a high court of appeal from all the lower courts and out of which seemingly has grown the right of pardon vested in the kings of modern europe the full meaning and extension of the title seems not to have been discerned at once but once grasped it was too important to be dropped by its succeeding emperors dated the tenure of their power as by the years of a king's reign and the formal act by which the title was conferred on the kinsman or the confidant who stood nearest to the throne seemed to point him out for succession to the imperial rank the familiar name of prince was one of dignity rather than of power the Senatus, in old days had been the foremost senator of his time distinguished by weight of character and the experience of high rank, early consulted in debate, and carrying decisive influence by his vote. No one but the emperor could fill this position safely, and he assumed the name henceforth to connect him with the senate, as other titles seemed to bind him to the army and the people. For the post of supreme pontiff, Augustus was content to wait a while, until it passed by death from the feeble hands of lepidus he then claimed the exclusive tenure of the office and after this time pontifex maximus was always added to the long list of imperial titles it put into his hands as the highest functionary of religion the control of all the ritual of the state it was a convenient instrument for his policy of conservative reform and associated with his name some of the reverence that gathered round the domain of spiritual life Besides these titles, to which he assumed an exclusive right, he also filled occasionally and for short periods some of the republican offices of higher rank, both in the capital and in the country towns. He took from time to time the consular power, with its august traditions and imposing ceremonial. The authority of Kensor lay ready to his hands when a moral reform was to be set on foot, and a return attempted to the severity of ancient manners, or when the senate was to be purged of unworthy members and the order of the equites or knights to be reviewed and its dignity consulted beyond the capital the proconsular power was vested in him without local limitations and gave him the right to issue his instructions to the commanders of the legions as the great generals of the republic had done before finally he deigned often to accept offices of local dignity in the smaller towns throughout the empire appointing in each case a deputy to discharge the duties of the post the offices of state at rome meanwhile lasted on from the republic to the empire unchanged in name and with little seeming change of functions consuls praetors quaestors tribunes and ideals rose from the same classes as before and moved for the most part in the same round of work though they had lost for ever their power of initiative and real control elected by the people formerly but with much sinister influence of bribery and auguries they were now mainly the nominees of caesar though the forms of popular election were still for a time observed and though augustus condescended to canvass in person for his friends and to send letters of commendation for those whom he wished to have elected the consulship was entirely reserved for his nominees but passed rapidly from hand to hand since in order to gratify a larger number it was granted at varying intervals for a few months only for though it was in fact a political nullity henceforth and its value lay mainly in the evidence of imperial favour or its prospects of provincial office yet the old dignity lasted still and for centuries the post was spoken of by romans as almost the highest prize of their ambition for lower posts a distinction was observed between the places generally less than half reserved entirely for the emperor to fill with his candidati caesaris as they are called in their inscriptions and those that were left for some show of open voting, though influenced it might be by court favour. The peculiar feature of the old Roman executive had been its want of centralised action. Each magistrate might thwart and check his colleague. The collision between different officials, the power of veto, and the absence of supreme authority might bring the political machinery to a deadlock. The imperial system swept aside these dangers, left each magistrate to the routine of his own work and made him feel his responsibility to the central chief it was part of the policy of augustus to disturb as little as possible the old names and forms of the republic to leave their show and dignity that those who filled them might seem to be not his own creatures but the servants of the state but besides these he set up a number of new offices often of more real power though of lower rank he filled the most important of them with his confidants delegating to them the functions which most needed his control and in which he could not brook any show of independence and left behind him the rudiments of a centralized bureaucracy which his successors gradually enlarged two terms correspond respectively to two great classes the name praefectus the prefet of modern France stood in earlier days for the deputy of any officer of state charged especially to execute some definite work. The prefects of Caesar were his servants, named by him and responsible to him, set to discharge duties which the old constitution had commonly ignored. The prefect of the city, praefectus urbi, had appeared in shadowy form under the republic to represent the consul in his absence augustus felt the need when called away from rome to have someone there whom he could trust to watch the jealous nobles and control the fickle mob his trustiest confidants Maecenas and agrippa filled the post and it became a standing office with a growing sphere of competence overtopping the magistracies of earlier date the praefects of the praetorian cohorts first appeared when the Senate formally assigned a bodyguard to Augustus later in his reign. The troops were named after the picked soldiers who were quartered round the tents of the generals of the Republic. And when they were concentrated by the city walls, their chief commanders soon filled a formidable place in history, and their loyalty or treachery often decided the fate of Rome. Next to these in power and importance came the praefects of the watch the new police force organized by Augustus as a protection against the dangers of the night and of the corn supplies of Rome, which were always an object of especial care on the part of the imperial government. And besides these, there were many various duties entrusted by the head of the state to special delegates, both in the capital and through the provinces. The title, Procurator, which has come down to us in the form of Proctor, was at first mainly a term of civil law and was used for a financial agent or attorney the officers so-called were regarded at the first as stewards of the emperor's property or managers of his private business they were therefore for some time of humble origin for the emperor's household was organized like that of any roman noble slaves or freedmen filled the offices of trust wrote his letters kept his books managed his affairs and did the work of the treasurers and secretaries of state of later days. Kept within bounds by sterner masters, they abused the confidence of weak emperors, and outraged Roman pride by their wealth, arrogance, and ostentation. The agents of the emperor's privy purse throughout the provinces were called by the same title, but were commonly of higher rank and more repute such in its bare outline was the executive of the imperial government. We have next to see what was the position of the Senate. That body had been in early times the council summoned to advise the king or consul. By the weight and experience of its members and their lifelong tenure of office, it soon towered above the short-lived executive and became the chief moving force at Rome but the policy of the Gracchi had dealt a fatal blow at its supremacy. Proscriptions and civil wars had thinned its ranks. The first Caesar had treated it with studied disrespect, and in the subsequent times of anarchy the influence of the order and the reputation of its members had sunk to the lowest depth of degradation. It was one of the first cares of Augustus to restore its credit. At the risk of odium and personal danger, he more than once revised the list and purged it of unworthy members, summoning eminent provincials in their place. He was careful of their outward dignity and made the capital of a million sesterces a needful condition of the rank. The functions also of the Senate were, in theory, enlarged. Its decrees on questions brought before it had henceforth the binding force of law. As the popular assembly ceased to meet for legislation, case after case was submitted to its judgment till it gained speedily by prescription a jurisdiction of wide range and before long it decided the elections at its will or registered the nominations of the emperor but the substance of power and independence had passed away from it for ever matters of great moment were debated first not in the senate-house but in a sort of privy council formed by the trusted advisers of the emperor while the discussions of the larger body served chiefly to mask the forms of absolutism, to feel the pulse of popular sentiment, and to register decisions formed elsewhere. Treated with respect and courtesy by wary princes, the senators were the special mark of the jealousy and greed of the worst rulers. End of Section two.